All right. Good evening. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel 15. We've been in this chapter, it seems, for a little longer than I had anticipated. But uh, going through this chapter, for some reason, just brought up a lot of things. And there's a lot of things here that we can learn. And that's really the meaning of the Scripture, right? Uh, The Bible says that the Word of God is there for our nurture, for our admonition, for our learning, for... uh, you know, it's there for our study. It's supposed to change our lives. As we read through these things, and we have to remember, it's, this is not, these aren't stories. You know, when people read of David and Goliath and, and, and uh, the thing with Bathsheba and David and Uriah, these things are real events in history, and they were written here for a reason, obviously. The Bible throughout is a Bible, uh, is a, is a, is a, the message overall is redemption. And, and we see that even in the life of David, as we see the many mistakes and sin issues that David had had, and yet God uh, forgave David. David right now is in heaven in spite of all the mistakes that he made, even some things that you and I have never done ourselves. You know, I mean, most of us in this room have never murdered anybody physically. Most of us have not maybe committed adultery physically. We may have done it in our minds, of course, but many, you know, so there's a lot of things that... Uh, that happened in David's life that haven't even happened to us. And yet the Bible says, because of his hard attitude of repentance, there's a, David's in glory right now. And Ezekiel tells us in chapter 34 that when Jesus comes back to the earth for his millennial reign, that David is going to be resurrected and he is going to serve as co-regent of some kind with Christ in, um, in Jerusalem, on this earth, that you and I are going to be in our new bodies during that time. And I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be a great and joyous time. It's not going to be the utopia that we, that we think about. Um, certainly Christ being on Jerusalem uh, physically, it's going to be completely different. But we know that he's going to rule with a rod of iron. That's what the Bible says. And does that sound like a, a complete utopia void of any sin issue? It's really not. Is it going to be better than anything we've ever known? Yes. But there's still going to be skirmishes. There's still going to be issues, but you and I will be in our new bodies, and we will be ruling and reigning with him for a thousand years. But the real great, the great thing is after the thousand-year reign, because we know that that is going to, God's going to cause this current earth and heavens to be um, consumed in flame and fire, and he's going to do, create a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness, a new Jerusalem, where there will be no Nothing evil. Evil will be vanquished and and set in the lake of fire forever and ever. And you and I will be in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, in the new earth. And that is our eternal state. And I'm looking forward to that more than anything. But just to know that in spite of his many sins and mistakes, that David is there. And God's still going to use him. Can God use you when you make a big mistake in your life? You know, the thing about mistakes is it's not so bad to make a mistake We'd rather we didn't make a mistake, but when we do, it's what we do with that mistake. What, what, what do we do with that issue that, that we have done? Do we continue to perpetuate it and continue in it, or do we repent of it, truly turning away from it? And that's what David did. And that's why God can say in the Scripture that David was a man after God's own heart, because he, he didn't get stuck in his sin. He made the huge error, he turned, and he went toward Christ, and he never looked back. That's the difference, and that's what we need to learn as well. Don't let the devil get you into a place. And I think there's some, as we look through and have looked through the life of David, and as we're looking at it right now, there is a, uh, a part of David that I think that he was resigned to God, and he knew he was forgiven. And I think we'll see that tonight when we get into the end of chapter 15 and, and then chapter 16. We see David just kind of like, Lord, whatever you want. You know, I've made these errors. You know my sin is ever before you. I know you've forgiven me. I know I'm restored in fellowship with you. But David also knew there were consequences for his sin. And we also have consequences. Even though God has forgiven us, we have consequences. And so um, it's important to remember that. It's important to remember that for us too. So hang on to the Lord and never give up. You keep drawing close to him. Keep repenting. Or, or, you know, if you, if you repent and thought you repented and you slip in the same thing again, 
A righteous man will get up seven times and he will continue going on. Don't ever let the devil beat you into the ground saying you've done it too many times. God's not going to forgive you. He will always forgive you if you confess it. That's what he says, right? In 1 John 1, verse 8 and 9, that's what he said. And so we have to take him at his word. Never um, taking it for granted, although we tend to do that. Taking sin for granted. We can't do that. We shouldn't do that. Because when we do that, we really don't understand. We don't comprehend grace the way we ought to. Because real grace, when we comprehend grace, and I believe David did, we're not going to be flirting with sin anymore. We're going to be done with it. We're going to want to be done with it. And that is the difference between him and Saul. Saul was a man of the flesh, and he never uh, gave his heart over to Christ completely, where David did. And so we looked at um, chapter 15, and let me just summarize just for a few seconds here. Um, Absalom comes back into Jerusalem, and he had been banished, or he actually left uh, to go to uh, the land of Jeshur, which... Remember, Absalom's father's his name was Talmai. He was the king of Jeshur, and Jeshur is that area in the northern part of north of the Sea of Galilee to the east. And the reason he fled there is because he killed David's firstborn son Amnon. And why did he kill Amnon, his half brother? Because Amnon raped Absalom's full blood sister. Her name was Tamar. Remember, they were. Uh, Absalom and Tamar were from the same mother, and of course David was the father. And so Absalom uh, killed Amnon, David's firstborn son, and he fled to Talmai, or up, up in Jeshur. And he was up there for about three years, and then he comes back into Jerusalem for two years. He doesn't see David. David knows about what he's done, but David does precisely nothing, which is one of the flaws of, of David, that he, he really was kind of a checked-out parent at this time, and he really didn't... Um, uh, he really didn't take his sons and, and, and cause them to own their sin and certainly did nothing about it, it appears anyway. And so uh, this created quite a, a problem in David's family and it fulfilled the scripture with which God said to Nathan the prophet, you know, the sword shall never depart. And we know that Absalom killed Amnon and we're going to find out that Joab later on is going to kill uh, Absalom. And we're going to see that uh, David's own wives, his concubines, are going to be uh, taken into Absalom's harem, which fulfills the second part of that prophecy that God had made to David, which we'll look at. So Absalom finally comes into town. After, after two years, he approaches his father, and, um, and it doesn't really say much about what had happened. It said that at the end of chapter 14 that the king kissed Absalom, and so Absalom uh, went about and really fulfilled something that God had never called him to do, and that is to be a deputy, if you will, for his father. And as people would come into Jerusalem, people would, you know, Absalom would sit out there outside the gates of the city, and he would listen to their cases, you know, their lawsuits and things like that, and he would warm up to the people. And eventually, over time, in a short period of time, uh, Absalom won the hearts of all the men of Israel. And Absalom, if you remember, is one of these guys who looks like a natural-born leader. He was a tall man. He had long blonde hair, or long hair, and, um, and uh, he was a very good-looking man. And unfortunately, people tend to look up to somebody who's tall and handsome. If, you, if you're a leader in this country, you better be tall and handsome, you know, and you'll get more, uh, more support. And unfortunately, looks really mean nothing when it comes to real leadership. We know that. And so Absalom goes to Hebron, which is where he was born, under, false, under a false pretense, and he begins to amass an army of men. And then finally, he comes to bring that army back into uh, Jerusalem, and he brings and comes against his father. And so David, in verse 13 of chapter 15, he comes and uh, takes all the people, all his family, and they, they just depart from Jerusalem. And they head, uh, if you were to look at Jerusalem, uh, they would head down through the Kidron Valley going east, and then they would climb the Mount of Olives, 
and then uh, David stopped there, and ultimately he would be going somewhere over into the area of Transjordan or maybe even along the side of the Jordan River uh, where David knew that area very well. He was going to take his, his family and just kind of get out of town because he knew Absalom was coming. And, and so David does that. And so we pick up in verse 24 because David is leaving. And it, for some reason, this passage of Scripture really is so picturesque in my mind. I don't know why, but it, it's just so interesting to see the humility of David. You know, that one of the greatest kings that Israel had ever had. And then to, in spite of David's shortcomings, he, you know, he knows his son is coming, and instead of meeting his son head on and, and, and having this battle, I think it's really interesting that David, like a good shepherd, you know, if you think of it, he didn't want the battle in Jerusalem. Could he have come against uh, his son and, and, and his army against, you know, Absalom's army? He probably could have. But David chose rather just to flee. And there is a man who's resigned to the Lord's will. And it's a really good sign when you're like not trying to hold on to your seat of power. And, you're, and David's heart was, Lord, if this is your will for me, then, I'm, then, then you know, do with me whatever you want. You know? I never deserve this great privilege to begin with. If it's up to you for me to come back to Jerusalem, that's your business, not mine. I'm not going to sit here and try to claim some kind of thing. I'm going to let you do what you want, Lord. And David was just totally resigned. And I, and I find in here a man who is really broken. And brokenness is a really wonderful trait. It's a really wonderful thing. I think it's a place where God wants us to be. And sometimes it takes a long time for us to be broken. But I would encourage you to get to that place of brokenness. Allow God to break you. Allow him to break you of your self-will. We all have a will and we have a desire for certain things, but to be surrendered to whatever God wants and to whatever he wills is a whole different matter. For most of us, that's a battle that takes a lifetime. And can I tell you there are Christians who are on their deathbed tonight that still have not given their will completely over to God. Are they going to heaven? Yes. But have they missed out on a great portion of their life of, of surrender and real service to the, to the King of Kings? Yes. So get to that place. Don't be afraid when God wants to break you. And if your life is filled with heartache and pain and you're, you're, you're recognizing the, the, the sin in yourself, the frailty, and you're aware of all these things within you, you're in good company. Because when you read David's Psalms, and when you see David going through what he's going through tonight, you're like, you know, I'm in good company. I'm in good company. And I don't need to fear it. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that things are always rosy, and all the birds are shining, you know, the, the sun is shining all the time, and the birds are chirping, and everything is just going well for you. Sometimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes it's, it's very difficult. But we need to worship Jesus nonetheless. But brokenness is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. So notice, as he's fleeing Jerusalem, notice verse 24, And there was Zadok also, and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Because remember, they're going from Jerusalem and um, going down the Kidron Valley and then going up the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And then they were going to continue going into the... Um, actually, it's on this side, Rich. And uh, they're going over toward the east out of trouble, out of the sight of Absalom. And so they set down the ark, and Abiathar went up until all people had crossed over from the city. And then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. You know, one of the things that I've learned and I'm still learning is, again, like, we said, uh, like I said earlier, is to surrender to the Lord as soon as possible especially when it's in areas of my life uh, where it's my will, and my will is getting in the way of God's will. You know, just surrender, just surrender. Learn to surrender and be broken. And this is where I believe David's heart was at. He wasn't holding on to anything. He was willing to just surrender to the Lord's will. And he knew 
that having the ark with him did not guarantee any outcome. Do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the, the children of Israel, under the leadership of Saul, they went out into the battle against the Philistines and they took the Ark of the Covenant foolishly into battle with them, thinking that just because uh, you know, the, the tablets of stone were in there and, and, the, and the omer of, of, of uh, manna and Aaron's rod, you know, they, they, they associated that to be like the, the presence of God, which to them it was. But it wasn't a rabbit's foot. It wasn't some talisman for, talisman for good. And yet they treated it like that. And David knew better. He's like, you know what? Take that ark back to the city where it belongs because my relationship is not with a box. My relationship is the God of the box. <laughs> the God of everything that's inside that box. I don't need the ark. Keep it safe but my relationship is in God. And that's a really good thing for us to remember. Remember, he created all things. He created the ark. He gave the blueprint for it. He created the gold that it was made of. He created the stone that the, that the, the law was engraved on, that he engraved with his own finger. He has all things. And so David didn't treat it like some luck charm. And he knew that a relationship of God was more important than anything else. He didn't take any, in any confidence in any object rather than the confidence in the one who made that object. And this is rightly placed devotion and worship. When our focus is on Jesus and not on anything else, that is rightly, rightly placed devotion. And people place their devotion in so many things. They can place their devotion in a, in a famous pastor, you know, whoever it may be, and they look up to him and they're just, you know, and, and, and they ought not to do that. They've got to be really careful of that. Focus on Christ. He is the one that saved your soul. Nobody else on earth. And it's okay to look up to someone and say, I want to follow you as you follow Christ, but when you mess up, I'm still going to follow Christ. Right? So we have to keep a light touch on God's servants, but keep a great touch. Hold on to his leg like a child does to its father. I remember when, I was, uh, when Ariana was much younger, we used to have these leg rides, and I would, she would grab my leg, and, and, and I would just drag her around the house, and I'd even go upstairs, and I'd drag her and go up the stairs, you know, and she'd just be having all of her legs and arms wrapped around my leg, and that's the way we need to be with the Lord. Stick to him, cleave to him, and hold on to him, because you need to. You and I need to cleave to Christ, but we have to let go of everything else. Let go of the world. There's enough of the world in the church. We don't need any more world. We need more Jesus. We need to be hanging on to him and having a light touch on everything else. And happy is the man who, or woman who gets to that place quicker than anybody else. You're going to be much more blessed. And so notice verse 26, but David said, but if, if, he, if, if God says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. And again, this is a man who's resigned to the will of God, and this is what a man who has been broken looks like. You look at David's life in this, this is what brokenness looks like, a good brokenness. The world would say David's full of, he, he doesn't have any self-esteem. Poor guy, he needs to go to a class to learn how to build his self-esteem. He's so down on himself and looking down upon... No, you know what? The problem with America and with most of us is that we have too much self-esteem. We think too much about ourselves. That's our problem. It is. It's a problem. But it's when we think little of ourselves. Then we can be useful in the hand of God. We can't disappoint ourselves when you don't really think there's a lot there. Save what the Spirit of God is doing in you. And that's what we need to be thinking of. Don't worry about your self-esteem. We need to be Christ-esteemed. I need to be thinking about him and less of myself. Amen? And even though David knew that he was forgiven, he also was willing to submit himself to the Lord's chastening, which is really what this is, because Nathan had told him that. He was willing to undergo the chastening of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, just write the reference down, and I'll just read it to you for the sake of time. Hebrews 12, verse 3, it says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Obviously here, the author of Hebrews is speaking of Jesus. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And here he quotes 
uh, Job uh, chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, um, the author does. He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Boy, that is a different message than what the world would like to give. You know, this is not some good old boy club. You know, Christianity is, we don't wink at sin, even in people that we know and love. We don't wink at it and say, oh, you're in the church, man, that's okay. No, we, we rebuke them. We love them enough to tell them the truth. You don't have to be mean about it, but isn't, isn't it wonderful when you can go to somebody and you have the relationship with one another? That we, can, we, we, really, we, we need to be that. We need to be iron sharpening iron. We need to be that toward one another. We can't let that. We've got to raise the bar because the bar is pretty high. And we, we can't give any provision for the flesh because if we do, if we give an inch, believe me, the flesh will take a mile. It will, and you know this from your own life. I know it from my own life. If I give it an inch, it'll take a mile. If I give it a mile, it'll take three miles. If I give it three miles, it's going to take ten miles. And so on it goes until I'm living a life of complete hedonism and lost in, in my mess, Right? But notice what it says in, in Hebrews, as if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. And what son is there whom after a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but it is painful. Has anybody experienced that? Is chastening by the Lord easy to, to, to go through? No, it's, it's, not, it's not easy. But if you are chastened of the Lord, happy are you. What you ought to fear is when you're not going through chastening <laughs> and your conscience perhaps has become seared and you're no longer feeling guilty about that sin that you do. When that happens, you're in a really bad place. Thank God for his conviction. His conviction is a wonderful gift for us. The gift of repentance is a wonderful gift. I pray for that often. Lord, give me the gift of repentance. It is. It's a gift. It's something that we have to do, but it's a mystery but when you finally get to that point where you're like, you know, I'm done with this. I really am done with this. I don't like anything about it. I don't like what it does for me, my relationship with God. I hate what it does to my heart. And there comes a point where you're like, you know what? I really have experienced the pain enough, and I'm done with that sin. There's plenty more, but I'm done with that. I'm done with it. Will you be done with your sin I love what it says in Revelation uh, chapter 3, verse 19. As Jesus is writing this letter to the Laodicean church, he says this, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That's a really good word. And behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the, the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I love that. See, that's God's design. That's what he wants. He doesn't want you to go away. He wants you to draw near. But we have to leave our sin. We have to turn away from it and come to him. And that's what David, he willingly surrendered these things. He was willing to undergo the chastening of God, knowing very well that his sin was forgiven. He was already forgiven, but he's also willing to take it on the chin because when we sin, there are things in motion that happen that just God doesn't remove those all the time. He may lessen it, but he is not obligated, and he seems to allow the consequences to follow. And that's the bitter pill. And that's where David was. He's like, you know, I know I've been forgiven, Lord, but you know what? Because of what I've done, I have no right to say anything. I have no reason to speak anymore. For you are faithful and just in all that you do. I accept what you want, and that is a broken man Oh, man, I hope I get like that. Or I no longer fight him and say, but, 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 I didn't mean it, Lord, but somebody else made me do it, the devil made me do it. And he's like, no, you, you did it. <laughs> Owning your sin. But are you still willing to fight with God or are you willing to surrender to him? 
Are you willing? Are you still willing to fight with them? Are you willing to be broken? And this question is not only for the unbeliever, but it's for the believer as well. The unbeliever needs to come to Christ to be broken, but also the believer needs to be broken as well. And it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is near to those who, are, who have a broken heart, and such as have a contrite spirit. This was a psalm of David, and he knew a thing or two about this, didn't he? He said, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and all those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. And the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who put who trust in him shall be condemned. And David, again, what great authority as he wrote that psalm. Because he knew firsthand. You know, it's one thing to hear about something, to hear about the word of God, but when you actually have lived the word of God, you own that scripture. You can say with authority, this is what happened to me, and this is what God did in my life. And when you get to that place, your, your, your life, you're like a living epistle, as Peter tells us, right? You're a walking letter, you're a walking ambassador. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, it says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him. Notice, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God loves brokenness. He loves contriteness. When it's genuine, he loves it. Are you there? Do you want to be there? Are you willing to be broken? Or are you like that stallion that refuses to take the bit and the bridle? You've been living your life out in the, in the wild and doing and, and all kinds of crazy things, and somebody comes along and wants to put a bit and a bridle on you and put a saddle on you, and you kick and you fight and you spit and you kick, <laughs> and it takes a while for that horse to be broken. That horse has to be broken. Its will has to be submitted to the rider, to the owner of that horse, to the one who puts the bridle in and, the, and everything and the saddle. It takes time. And when that horse finally is broken, the master can choose and point that horse wherever he wants. And see, you and I don't often get to that place of brokenness like a stallion. Sometimes we do. Sometimes it takes a lifetime. But wouldn't it be better just to finally, really in your heart of hearts, say, Lord, I'm, I want to be done. I'm done fighting you. I'm done fighting for what I want to get out of my life. I want to surrender to you. And that's where David was. It's a great place. And notice what it says in verse 27. The king said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city with the ark. Go in peace and your two sons with you. Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Now, what David is, what's happening here is David is telling them to go back and to be a mole for him, in a sense. And subterfuge or deceit like this is not really something that the Lord is into. But in the, in the times of battle and in a situation like this, it happens it happens, and so now David has his men on the inside. We're going to see another one uh, coming shortly who's going to do the very same thing. David's going to have at least five or six guys back in Absalom's palace to kind of be ears on the ground to hear what Absalom is doing. And so um, uh, he's going to have these moles in the administration. So verse 29, Therefore Zadok and Abiathar, they carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. And I think of what faithful men these are. You know, they really wanted to be with David. They had no idea what Absalom was going to do to them because they knew that he was, they were faithful to David. And if you know anything about warfare, the, the last thing you want to be is the one whom David really liked and you were close to David and now there's a new administration and you go in there. What are they going to do? They're going to fire you. Or back in this time, they might even kill you. So these men are are willingly putting their life on the line, going into Absalom's administration now, going back to Jerusalem, submitting to David. And oh, how they must have loved this man. How they must have loved him. 
And they're like, you know what? It's easy for us because we're willing to die with you, David. We'd be willing to go with you. And if they chased us and they killed us, so be it. But we'll, we're willing to do what our master says. Amazing men, amazing men, loyal, loyal and faithful. Are you loyal and faithful? Or are you a turncoat and a coward? God has a way of bringing that out in our life, doesn't it? To find out whether we are loyal or whether we are a turncoat and a coward. Which are you? Which am I? So David went up, verse 30, by the ascent of the Mount of Olives, again going eastward, and he wept as he went up, and, and he had his head covered and went barefoot, and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went. And again, uh, having been to Israel, and if you've been to Israel, you know the landscape. As you're out there on the, on the Temple Mount, you, you can look out over that valley, and you go up, and you, the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane is there on the side of the hill, and then you continue rising, and you continue going, and... and uh, uh, Bethany is over here, and then Baharim, we're going to look at that a little later, is a little bit further away, and then you go across the Judean plains and the foothills, and you go right down into the valley of Jordan. And David is on his way, and this scene is just, it's just so picturesque in my mind. And incidentally, this is the same place as David comes up the hill there to the Mount of Olives, it's the same place where Jesus suffered in the garden. It's also the place near where he ascended 40 days after his resurrection in Bethany on that same mountain, not too far away, about two miles. Same place. Verse 31, then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, there was Hushai, Hushai is his name, and the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, If you go with me, then you will become a burden to me, Hushai. In other words, you are a liability for me if you come. You're a great friend, but I can't have you come with me. I don't know what Hushai looked like. He may have been an older man. And maybe David saying, You know what? You're better off just going and submitting yourself to my son. Just, you know, you have no reason to be out here. We don't even know where we're going yet, Hushai. Stay back. And preserve yourself. He says, verse 34, But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was with your uh, father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant, then, may, then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And you remember, we looked at Ahithophel last time we were together. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, David said, the priests with you there, my other moles? <laughs> They're there with you, Hushai. Zadok and Abiathar, their two sons, and you, five of you at least. You guys listen and let me know what's going on and send word to me out in the plain. And indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimez, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So he'd be gathering intelligence with those four men. So Hushai, David's friend, look at that, underline that, it's such a wonderful thing. Hushai, David's friend. By the Spirit of God, it puts it in there, David's friend. David had very few friends. And it's a moment like this when everything is being shaken up. Uh, something I'm learning is that when everything starts to go to pot, you find out who your friends are and who your enemies are. Because everyone likes to be around you when the money's flowing and everything and there's success of some kind. But as soon as things start going downhill, you really find out who your friends and your enemies really are. And it takes something like this sometimes to expose it, to expose the hearts of people. And that's exactly what is happening here. And David's going to find out who are really his, who really are love him just because they love him. And he finds out who the enemies are, are, really are. And so Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. It's been said um, 
that a faithful friend is one of heaven's best gifts. Do you have a friend? Do you have somebody who's a really good friend? Someone you can confide in? Someone you can pray with? Someone you can tell them all of your dirty laundry and you have every confidence that they're not going to betray you? They're not going to talk behind your back? Very seldom does that happen anymore. But if you have a friend like that, hold on to them. And be willing to be a friend like that. When somebody says, hey, just keep this between you and I, are you able to do it or are you on the phone or are you texting somebody saying, I can't believe so-and-so said this and did you hear what they said and what happened to them? And I can't believe it. I thought they were this holy person. Happens all the time. But to have a friend who says, you know what, I'd rather die than speak a bad word against my friend. David had a friend like that in Jonathan. Remember Jonathan before he died? says that their love for each other was, 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 was even more than the love of women. They weren't gay. But their love for each other, the bond that they had as brother to brother, was so tight. They would, they would take a bullet for each other. That is a friend. And God has a way of allowing life to bring those things out. And in the passage of time, we find out really what we're made of, what kind of friend we really are. And let me just say this, if you break somebody's heart, if you break a friend's heart, you betray their trust, apologize to them and never do it again. Apologize to them and be close to them and there's going to be consequences. Trust is broken. It's like when a man or a woman, a, man, a husband or a wife commits adultery. It, you, you can be forgiven by your spouse, but it's going to take time for that to heal. It's going to take time to build that trust again, maybe even years. And are you willing to go through it? You better, if you want it to last. But to be a loving friend. Psalm 3 is a great psalm. Let me just read it to you. Just put it in the margin of your Bible because this is where we believe David wrote this psalm as he was fleeing from Absalom. Let me just read it to you. In fact, in the prologue of the psalm, it says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And that's exactly where we're at right now. He says this, O Lord... They have How they are increased that trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say to me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are the shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept, and I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. And what is the exhortation in this? Be faithful where God has placed you. Absalom comes against his own father, not content with where he was in life, thinking and presuming that he was going to be the heir apparent. And unfortunately, David, we've said this before, but David didn't communicate, it seems, to many people that really the one who was going to take his place would be Solomon. It appears that there's only a handful of people in the inner circle that knew that. I don't know that Absalom knew that. Amnon had died. Daniel, or Chiliab, was David's second. He, he died when he was real young. So the next one in line, the heir apparent, was Absalom. And so he's going for it. He's going for it, not knowing that there was already a chosen one. God had chosen Solomon, not Absalom. And Absalom was seeking to do something that God had never called him to do. Be faithful where God has placed you and don't seek to tear down or overthrow someone because of your own greed or your own pride, thinking that you can do it better. Hey, guess what? You may be able to do it better, but God has chosen people. And that's the thing that freaks people out is how God can choose someone who's just not quite that great. And somebody else has got all the charisma. They can speak better. They can do better. They even look, more, they even look better. Got the pedigrees behind them. They got all this big following. God says, I could care less. I could care less. I've chosen him, and I'm going to do great things through him, not Absalom. I'm going to do great things through him. Yes, he's the tall, dark, and handsome fellow, but I haven't called him. I called David, and I called Solomon, his son. I have not called him. So be careful what lane you're in. <laughs> How many companies in America 
are, seeking, are, are, are trying to be overthrown by people that are underneath the boss? How many churches in America have pastors and are, the pastors and churches have elders and deacons and other people secretly conspiring behind the pastor's back, getting him to, to get ousted because they think they can do better? It happens all the time. And Absalom, he was that man. Be content with the little things and God will promote you in his due time. In Daniel chapter 2.21, it says that God changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. In Psalm 75 verse 6, it says, For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. That's God's business. It's not our business. We should never entangle ourselves in, 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 in these kinds of things. And finally, as we look at this, we look at David, and what is he doing? Is he holding on to his, 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 his title? Is he, is he like, no, I am the king of Israel. Mm, nobody's going to take it away from me. You ever seen a kid with a toy? He's like, no, it's mine. <laughs> you ever seen kids do that? And they pout. Mm. They got a twin brother or something like that, and they're fighting over a Tonka truck. And yet David, he's like, I'm going to trust what does it say in Proverbs? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not just a little bit of it, but all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, all of your ways, boy, that's a tall order. Oh, help. <laughs> in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He will direct your paths. But trust in him. David is trusting in God. I'm leaving. <laughs> Absalom's coming. There's going to be bloodshed. And you know what? I've done a lot to this city. I don't want to see it destroyed. I don't want to see the people destroyed. In order for there to be a conflict, two people have to engage. And David says, no thanks, I'm gone. And he walks. One of the most spiritual things he, that can be done is to walk away from a fight. But David had a deep trust for God, just like Job. Remember when Job says, Though God slay me, yet I will trust in him. Though he slay me, even though he didn't slay him, but he allowed him to be wounded deeply. He says, even though you slay me, Lord, I will trust you. And I tell you, Job was broken. Don't you think that whole thing with removing you know, his, his sons and his daughter and his livestock and his family and everything was just destroyed, then the, finally the enemy touches his very skin, his bone. He gets a disease and he's like in, in a really bad place and completely broken. Man, I tell you, so few people get there. And not that God has to bring those kind of maladies on us to bring us to a place of brokenness, but sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. I don't understand it. It's not like some cookie-cutter religion. We can't you know, look at somebody else going through that and say, well, God must not love you because he's really doing these hard things in your life. And why is it that everything is going great in my life and I feel like I'm on top of the world? Well... Maybe the Lord needs to do that in that person. There's things that you don't understand. And other people are watching too. His life is on display. What is he going to do? He may have parents and siblings and other people looking at him, seeing how he's going to respond to this blight and this pain in his life. And the true Christian can say, Ah, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And to have that testimony going through all that stuff, man, is huge. That's like gold. It's gold. It's not wood and chaff and hay that just gone. No, this is the real stuff. It's the gold and the silver, the things that God wants to do. That's the kind of stuff he wants to make us out of. That's what he's doing in David's life. The world says, you're just a weakling and a wimp. You can think that all you want. David's in heaven and you're going to hell. <laughs> right? That's what David can say. I'm going to heaven and you're going to hell. You can call me a wimp and a whatever you want, but guess what? I know God and would the God that you knew God the way I know God I trust in him. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. It's a good thing to be in. And to know. The, the, the Greek word is gnosko. It, it's, it's a word that means to know by experience. And this was something that the disciples learned too. It says in John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? And Peter answered him and said, Lord, where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know 
that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The word know there is gnosko. We've learned by experience, through experiential. We've learned by experience walking with you these three years, Lord, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And see, that's the difference, to know him. Job would say, you know, I've heard with you with the ear, but now I know you. Now I know. And to know that way, no one will be able to take it away from you. Your walk is like a trophy to the Lord when you go through stuff like that. The things you've gone through and people look and they see and they're like, oh my goodness. God got you through all of that. What a disaster it was, but now look at you. You know, what a wonderful thing. Don't ever be discouraged by your shortcomings, your sin. David was, but he knew he was forgiven. Are you forgiven? Have you asked God to forgive you? I would encourage you to do that. He had learned, David, by experience, the grace, the mercy, the love, the forgiveness of God. And I love what it says in Psalm 34, verse 8, another psalm of David where he said, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who what? Who trusts in him. David tasted and saw that the Lord is good. And what a testimony he had and what great comfort we have as we read these psalms, as we go through things and we read the heartbreak and the brokenness and we're like, man, we are in such good company. You know, when you read the Bible, you are in great company, especially when you're going through the stuff that's just racking you with everything you've got and you feel like, God, I just, I don't think I can take anymore. I just feel like wave after wave is billowing on me and just wiping me out, Lord. I am so tired. I'm so beaten. I'm so broken. And God's going, wonderful. Look to me. Look to me. Look to me. Don't resist. Don't fight. Stop kicking. And David is walking across the Kidron Valley, broken. Are you getting to know the Lord like this? Are you learning to to trust and submit to the Lord? In Galatians 5.21, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and long-suffering or patience. It takes patience. Are you patient? Are you willing to be patient? Are you willing to grow in patience? I don't grow in patience unless I find myself being in places where I'm really impatient. And then I find out how impatient I really am and how much I need to grow in patience. So when you find yourself in those places, just submit to them and say, Lord, I know I'm just, my flesh is rising up. I just want to kill somebody. <laughs> But Lord, I just, I can't, I can't, I, I, I just surrender. I surrender. I surrender. When David was a little past, going into chapter 16 here, when David was a little past the top of the mountain where there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple saddled donkeys, and on them were 200 loaves of bread and, two, and 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits and a skin of wine. You can read 2 Samuel chapter 9 and, and remember uh, Ziba. He was a servant of Mephibosheth, uh, Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson, who was uh, David took Mephibosheth in after the death of Saul and his, his dad, Jonathan. And Ziba was supposed to, because Mephibosheth was wounded and he was a crippled, Ziba was the one and his sons, they were to take care of, of Mephibosheth's property, his, his flocks and everything, they, and, the, and the, the vineyards. They were to take care of those things for Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth got to eat with the king, this, son of, of, this grandson of Saul. Think of how great and what mercy was there. And then the king said, And where is your master's son, Ziba? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. We don't know whether this is really true or not, because if it was true, Mephibosheth would certainly have the motive. But in 2 Samuel 19, verse 24, we're going to get to this in a few weeks, he claimed that Ziba deceived him. So this is probably not a true statement at all. And we'll look at that when we get to it. So the king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. So all the things, that all the land, uh, King David's just kind of had it up to here. He's like, I don't even know who to believe now. There's so much deception. Does that sound familiar? You know, the press is telling me one thing, but the reality is something else. And, and David's like, I don't know who to believe. Mephibosheth is not here, but Ziba's here giving us goods. And he's telling me something. I don't know if it's true or not. I've got no reason to not believe him, but I don't quite get it because... Mephibosheth was a very 
humble man. He was very thankful. I, I, can't, I can't imagine that he would do something like that. So David is conflicted, and he's like, you know what? All of his land is yours. You know, in a weak moment of frustration, perhaps, he says, Ziba, you take his land. You know, if he's a turncoat, then you just take it. You know, David not knowing. And later we'll see how that is restored back to Mephibosheth, at least half of it. So the king said to Ziba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you, that I may find favor in your sight, O Lord, my king. And so now when King David came to Baharim, uh, which is further east uh, from the Mount of Olives, going eastward, there was a man from the family of the household of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming there uh, from there. And he came out cursing continuously as he came. And he's thinking to himself, David is finally being deposed. He deserves it. And as he's up on the mountain, he's looking down there in the valley as David and all of his, his entourage, his family, the king's family is, 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 is going. And he's up there on the top and he's kicking the dirt on top, looking down on them, picking up rocks and throwing them at him. And um, thinking that... All of a sudden now, maybe the kingdom will resort back to the, the, the Benjamin, right? Back to Saul's descendants, or maybe even to Mephibosheth, you know? He's thinking these things and, and, and assuming that David's done now. He's done. He's walking out. He's, he's defeated. We'll never see him again. They'll probably chase him down and kill him. He's done. And now he's ingratiating himself to this new master, whoever that may, may be, assuming that ultimately the, the tribe of Benjamin may take uh, control again. Who knows? But notice what he said to him. He threw stones at David and all the servants of David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right side and on his left. And Shimei said this when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. Now David was certainly not a bloodthirsty man. He was a sinner and made some really huge mistakes, especially with the death of Uriah. But Shimei's words were nothing but slander and hatred. Does this sound familiar? Does, is there someone who slanders you every day before the throne of God? Yes, his name is Satan. He's always slandering you before God, saying what a wretch you and I are. And the, the sad thing is, is some of it may be true, even though we've asked God to forgive us. Still doesn't keep him from going and slandering us. So the Lord has brought upon you, and this is Shimei still um, uh, offering slander. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. It's so untrue. So untrue. David had at least two opportunities to kill Saul, and he didn't. David did not desire for Saul last, Saul's last remaining son, Ishbosheth, to be killed, but he was killed unbeknownst to David. David also brought Mephibosheth under his wing and provided food and for his servants, and he gave him the inheritance of his father Saul. Was David a bloodthirsty man? No, he wasn't. Now, Joab, different story. I think Joab was a bloodthirsty man, but not David. David was a merciful man. How many men would take their, their, the previous king's son into his own house and care for him and, and, and not seek to put other of the men to death? David, he had a different heart. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go and take off his head. And Abishai, remember, was, the, um, was David's nephew from his sister, who was Zeruiah. Zeruiah was David's sister. She gave birth to Joab, Abishai, and another one of uh, uh, Joab's brothers. So Abishai is like, David, I'm tired of listening to this guy yap his mouth. I'll just go up there and take his head off. How about that? And David's like, <laughs> what have I to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. What, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, see how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite, this Shimei, let him alone, let him curse, for maybe the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction and that the Lord will repay me for good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. And then the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, they came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with him. 
Ahithophel, remember, was David's counselor. He was a very wise man, held in high esteem. He was also, we believe, Bathsheba's uh, uh, grandfather, which you can now see the hatred that he secretly held in David, even though, he gave, even though David gave him this great um, place of authority in his life. Secretly in his heart, he's like, you know what, one day I'm going to get back to that guy. He killed my son-in-law. He broke my daughter's heart. So, and it was so when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom is going, so uh, is this your loyalty to your friend, Hushai? <laughs> or, I'm sorry, not Hushai, yeah, Hushai. And um, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? So even Absalom is very suspicious about the motives and his comments, and Hushai said to Absalom, No, but he whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And furthermore, whom shall I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. And then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And we learn from previous verses that David, before he left, he left ten of his concubines to keep the palace. And now Absalom is going to go in and sleep with those women on the top of the palace, showing to Israel that the coup is complete because that's what a, a king would do when he would conquer a city. He would take the previous king's harem and he would go in unto them. And Ahithophel knew that very well. And he says, you want to clinch this deal and make this a, a binding thing? You go up and you sleep with those women in front of everybody. And Absalom, he did this. And do you know that this fulfilled the prophecy? Turn with me back to chapter 12. Look at verse 7. We're almost done here. Thank you for your patience. Look at 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. Remember, this was the prophecy that God gave to Nathan to give to David. And what we're seeing here now in Absalom's life, how he went and slept with those concubines, now this is going to finish or at least fulfill this prophecy. Remember what it said. It says, Nathan said to David, You are the man, and thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave to you your master's house and your master's wives and your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have also given you much more. And here it is. Why then have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. And here it is. These are the consequences. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Did that happen? Did the sword take from his household? Yes, he did. Absalom killed Amnon, and we're going to learn later that Absalom himself is going to be killed his daughter raped, and then it gets even worse. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Who is this person? It's going to be Absalom. From your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, to Absalom, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing for all of Israel before the son and there it is. And now we see it coming to pass. God telling David in advance what is going to happen. So when it came, he would understand that this was from the Lord. These are the consequences of sin. David forgiven, yes, but there are consequences. Boy, the consequences are the bitter pill, aren't they? I hate consequences. Would love to be able to just say, Lord, forgive me. And he says, you know what? I accept your forgiveness. And as a result, I'm going to erase it. And he does erase it, but I'm going to even take away the consequences. But God doesn't do that. He allows the consequences sometimes, most of the time, if not all of the time. And now the advice of, Hith now the advice of Hithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So he's a very respected man. And so was all the advice that Ahithophel gave to David and to Absalom. And... Um, 
And you know, when we look at those who went into exile with David and those who didn't, we really get a good glimpse of him or get, get a good glimpse of who was with David and who was against him. And sometimes these kind of things can be really a blessing because it does truly reveal the hearts of, of men. You find out who your enemies are and your real friends are. Was, was Hushai a, uh, or, or um, was Shimei a, a friend? No, he was an enemy. His true colors came out. Was Ahithophel a great man that David, that loved David secretly? In front of everybody, he loved David, but secretly in his heart, he hated him, waiting for an opportunity. Did Absalom really love his father? Or was he just waiting for the right opportunity? He waited years after David did nothing over the rape of Tamar. He waited for years, steadily plotting, steadily plotting, steadily plotting, and at the right moment, he takes it. Was he a man who loved David? Was Shimei a friend of David? Was Hushai, was he a friend of David? Oh, yeah. Was Ittai the, the, the man who came from uh, the Philistines, who had six other men of Cherethites and Perethites, who went over with David? Was that a real friend? He wasn't even an Israelite, and he loved David. He's, his loyalty shown when all of his brothers of, of, of Judah should have been with him. The enemy of Israel was more friendly to him than his own blood. The Lord has a way of shaking the trees. <laughs> have you seen one of those up in Michigan? They have this machine that can go up to the cherry trees, and they have this machine that goes underneath, and it's a big net. It just goes right underneath the tree, and it comes up like this, and then a little hand comes out and grabs a tree and just shakes it, and all the cherries just fall down. And the ones that remain are the ones that stay on the tree. They're not ready to fall. They're more stable. But all the other ones just fall to the ground. They fall into the net, and they're taken away. And sometimes the Lord allows that in our life. He's shaking David's life. And I tell you, it's, it's a horrible thing, but he found out who his friends were. He found out who his enemies were. Sometimes things need to be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken remains. Finish up in this verse and then we'll take communion. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, the writer of Hebrews quotes this this verse of Haggai, and we'll, we'll read it in context of Hebrews so that we don't have to. It's, um, it's actually um, Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, and the author of Hebrews brings it out. But notice what he says. I think this is interesting because David's going through this. And you and I have gone through a shaking this last couple of years, haven't we? The last year and a half. I think that the Lord is shaking everything, and only that which is stable is going to remain. But everything that's weak is just going to fall apart. You see Christians who once were, were vibrant and, and they claimed to, you know, loving God and then the, the, the first wave comes along and they're just, they're gone. We never see them again. I mean, it's not for me to judge about what the, what, what's going on. I have no idea, but I know they're no longer fellowshipping anywhere. It's almost like their legs got cut out from underneath them. The Lord has been shaking this planet for the last year and a half. He's been shaking it. Notice what it says in Hebrews 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And David's life was being shaken. And David found out who was really remaining with him. And everyone else just had ill motives, and it all comes out, doesn't it? It all comes out. The tree is shaken. And you find out who your enemies are. So Chris, why don't you um, come on up. And um, this is a really sobering chapter. I didn't know we'd get through it. I'd taken you a little longer. I apologize. Sort of. Uh, it's such a wonderful couple of chapters, honestly, just to see the, the difficulty of David. And yet, in all of it, he surrendered himself. He trusted in the Lord. He was a broken man. May the Lord get us to that place. Amen. Just surrender. Just surrender. Say, Lord, I'm yours. Take me. Okay. After uh, while 
Chris is sharing with us and we're worshiping, feel free to come up and grab the elements. Bring them back to your seat and we'll take them together, okay? First Corinthians. Paul said this, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We proclaim his death and certainly his resurrection. He put the death, our sin, and that's what makes this makes communion so special, is that we are communing with him. We're thanking him for what he has done. And as often as we do this, we do it in remembrance of him. How could we ever forget it? But yet, it's good to be reminded every time we get together. May we never grow tired of it, because I'm confident that when we get to heaven, we'll never say, Lord, I, I think I've heard it too much. I don't think we'll say that. I think we'll be so blown away that we are just going to fall at his feet. We're going to be overwhelmed with emotion. And it'll be that way for a long, long time. Just to know the depths of his love for you. Do you know that he loves you? He paid the price. That's why this, the, the bread, the, his body that was broken. Let's go ahead and partake of, of the bread broken on our behalf. And that same night, Jesus took the cup and he passed it. He said, this is the blood of my new covenant of the new covenant. Drink all of it. Let's partake. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for um, going to the cross for us. Thank you for being so willing to be the good shepherd, Lord, going before us, showing us things to come before they occur. Lord, giving us such peace in our hearts. Lord, we never have to worry about who the victor really is. You are victorious. You will always be victorious. You're the great king. And Lord, we tonight, Lord, just want to, as David was just broken and willing to submit himself to you and to trust you, to be contrite of a broken heart, Lord, we pray that, Lord, uh, even in our finest days, Lord, there'd be an attitude, an air about us that would be broken nonetheless, even when we're experiencing the highlights of life and, and on the top of our game, in a sense, and feeling really wonderful, God. There's nothing wrong with feeling like that, Lord, having those beautiful days like that where we're just really enjoying our salvation. But, Lord, underneath it all, Father, there is a brokenness, and may you bring us to that place. And may we just continue to exalt your name. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.